You can open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3, and we're going to read from verses 6 to 12. Malachi chapter 3. It's the last book of the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew, it's just back one book from there. Malachi 3, starting in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers... You have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil." And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for enlightenment here. Holy Spirit, we ask you to shine in our hearts through your word, the light of Christ now. Turn us into the kind of people Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 8 who are eager for the favor of participating in the relief of the saints. Would you do that miracle in our hearts for the glory of Christ? Amen. Amen. Well, all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2, God revealed a plan for blessing the world. His plan for blessing the world was going to be, it was going to begin in this temple garden called Eden, and it would be through his people, Adam and Eve. He said to Adam and Eve, I want you to go in this garden and work it and keep it. Feed the animals, tend to the plants, care for the earth, multiply and fill the earth with the glory of God and godly offspring. That was his plan. Eden would be the epicenter of God's blessing that was meant to flow out like those four rivers and bring life and flourishing to the rest of the world. But in Malachi's day, they were a long way from Eden. And in the last four books of Moses, the, you know, Exodus through Deuteronomy, God had revealed that in spite of our sin in Eden and getting kicked out, his plan hasn't changed. His plan to bless the people has shifted from Garden and Adam and Eve to temple and Levites, the temple where God was worshipped and the Levites, the tribe who was set aside to conduct that worship and be priests. So here's how, here's how the system worked, and this is from the book of Exodus through Malachi's day. This is the way this was supposed to work. They were in a goods-based economy, so that means that they, money isn't the big deal for them. Things are the big deal. 
You're rich if you have a lot of crops. You're rich if you have a lot of sheep or ox or goats or whatever. And so all the Israelites would bring 10% of their goods, their wealth, uh, and, they would, and it's what we call tithe, by the way. The word tithe comes from 10%. They would bring 10% of all that the Lord had blessed them with, and they'd bring it to the Levites, right? The tribe that was set aside. The Levites were like a tithe of the people to God. God said, I'm going to take this as my portion, these people. Uh, and all of the priests were Levites. And these Levites, they didn't have the same amount of property that all the other tribes had. They were really set apart for the work of ministry. And it was God's plan, or part of God's plan, that these ones who were set apart for the work of ministry would be provided for and sustained by the tithes of these people. So Israel brings their goods, their wealth, to the Levites, and then the Levites, they live off of that and take a whole bunch more of that and put it in the storehouse in the temple, in the treasury. Now, from that temple storehouse, from that treasury, all kinds of justice and mercy would be administered to the people. That was the plan. That was the goal. That money would facilitate the preaching of God's word, the singing of his praises, the training of his ministers. But beyond that, it also went into mercy ministries. Benevolence funds, right? Deuteronomy 26 is a great place to go and find out that when God's people tithe through the Levites to the temple, they were also supporting the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow, the orphans. In other words, there was no welfare. There was no government aid programs. There was the temple. And that's the place that God intended to bless the world through. That was God's plan. So you begin to see why the people in Malachi's day are accused of robbing God. It's not because God wants money. He, he doesn't. He's, he's quite wealthy on his own. God doesn't want money. God wants to bless the world. God wants to care for the least of these that the rest of the world walks on. And he is ordained to do that through his people. So we're going to be thinking about that plan to bless the world, and we're going to think about what it means for us and our money. (laughs) That's not an easy topic for most of us, guys. It's not for me. Truthfully, I was convicted in the preparation of this sermon, and I had to continue to change and hold my hands open before God and say, it's not about me and what I want, it's you and what you want. And we're going to do that together today. We're going to hear from his word in three points, a nice Baptist-y alliteration, stingy living, stunning generosity, and stewarding our resources. How's that? So those are the three points. We're going to dive into point number one right now. So let's look again at Malachi 3, verses 8 through 10, and we're going to think about what it means to be robbing God, okay? So number one, stingy living, Malachi 3, 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how? How have we robbed you? Here's how. In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. The whole nation, not just the Levites. Everyone's indicted here. He says, bring the full tithe, the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Again, you see, God doesn't need money. 
God wants the widows, the orphans, the fatherless, the sojourners to eat. And not doing so is robbing God. So bring it all in, Israel, Malachi says. Stop being stingy. Now this makes us think of Ananias and Sapphira from Acts chapter 5. Now this is jumping a long time into the New Testament, about 450 years later. And this is after Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven, and the church began to explode. The church became the epicenter of God's blessing for the world, God's plan to bless the world in Jesus through his people. There was no welfare still. There were no food stamps. The concept of government aid would not be invented until Constantine 400 years later. So where did the poor go for help? Well, I tell you, in Jesus' day, it wasn't the temple because they were still robbing God. That's why Jesus stomped into the temple, turned over tables, and said, this is a den of thieves. So they couldn't go to the temple. So if you're an orphan, if you're a widow, your only hope to survive was to go to the church. So the early community of Jesus followers began selling their property, began selling their goods, and they brought it to the church. They laid it at the apostles' feet, not to make the apostles rich and comfy and buy private jets, but that there might be food in the house of God. And so they took all of those things. Imagine if you own a home, imagine selling it and giving all of that to the church for mercy ministry. What kind of faith to entrust yourself wholly to the hands of Christ like that? That's what they were all doing. What a movement of renewal by the Spirit. But Ananias and Sapphira were a couple, they were a married couple, that wanted to look impressive more than they wanted the glory of Christ. So they did sell their property, but they kept back some of the proceeds and lied about it. And they, they brought the remainder, the remainder after skimming off the top, they brought it to the church, and they actually paid with it for their lives. God struck them down. That's how serious God takes, not money, that's how serious God takes his honor and his glory and how serious he takes mercy and justice in this world. God's plan for blessing the world and administering justice and mercy is in Jesus through his church. And he takes it very seriously, which doesn't mean that it's just a somber topic. It's actually a great joy and privilege. I was reading in 2 Corinthians 8 for the last two weeks a lot. And there's this one point where Paul's talking to the church in Corinth about the Macedonians, and he says they were really poor. The Macedonians were really poor, but they begged me earnestly that they might have the privilege of taking part in the relief of the saints. Do you see how that's the exact opposite of what was happening in Malachi's day? The Macedonian churches, this is like Philippi, they were saying, please let us give more money. (laughs) That's what the Spirit can do in our hearts. And this is not just an abstract idea that God's plan is to bless the world through his church. Let's just think about the last 2,000 years briefly and what God has done through the church. He's He's been so faithful to his people, so faithful to his plan, that the world 
we take it for granted, but there are some wonderful, beautiful things in this world that have come from the hand of Jesus through his church. For instance, I'm going to read you a paragraph from a profound atheist named Bart Ehrman. Ehrman was, is, he's still alive, he is a, one of the world's best New Testament scholars and first century historians. And he was a Christian, and he completely walked away from the faith. So bear that in mind. But here's what he writes as an atheist. He says, Most healthcare in the Greek and Roman worlds took place in the home, with families bearing the responsibility of nursing the sick. That, of course, is not the most effective mode of healthcare, but even simple nursing often produces salubrious results. Certainly, there were doctors trained in medical science who attended the sick, but these were private initiatives and, as a rule, benefited only with those of means. Doctors worked as individuals out of their homes or through home visitations to those who could afford their fees, but there were no public institutions dedicated to health issues, let alone that any that did so without charge. Hospitals, defined as buildings or building complexes that provided both outpatient and inpatient health care by professionally trained doctors and nurses, etc., they were a Christian invention. The services they provided were free of charge. That's someone who doesn't like Christianity. There's actually no dispute about this. Christians brought hospitals to the world. Government aid for the poor, as we mentioned earlier, came through Augustine. Think what you will of that. Millions of people have been kept alive through that, even done imperfectly. Literacy is one of the major focuses of missions work in the last 500 years. And if you're a woman in this room and can read, in large part, that's due to the church. Because missionaries full of the love of Christ came and said, women can read their Bibles too, not just men. So we have literacy. We have universities. The oldest universities in the world were founded as Christian institutions for the same reason as we care about literacy. God is the God of reason. He is truth himself. So education matters. Lastly, think about orphanages. Every great renewal movement and revival that I know of in the last four or five hundred years also resulted in the creation of new orphanages where there were none. Think George Whitfield, George Mueller, Amy Carmichael. When God moves and creates his people and brings together his church, the church blesses the world. That's what this true church does, and that's his plan. That's always been his plan, that the world would be blessed in the name of Jesus through ministry of the gospel in both word and deed. May we not separate those two. But it's still really easy to be stingy. I'm stingy. I am. I have deep recesses in my heart that I need to crack open to God in repentance for this. And he's doing that. But generosity is hard. It tugs on the strings of our idols and we tighten our grip. So that takes us to the second point, which is stunning generosity. Now, many people in, the, I don't know, forever have debated whether or not Christians, New Testament Christians, are commanded to tithe. 
Is it disobedient to not give 10% of your income? So many books have been written on that and articles and debates and whatever. The fact is, though, a researchable, discernible fact, the New Testament does not command you to tithe. The New Testament does command you to be generous. For instance, Jesus says that the entirety of the Old Testament law, that's this, that portion of your Bible, is summed up in two things. Loving God with everything you have and loving your neighbor as yourself. The thing is, to love your neighbor as yourself is actually a command to generosity. Did you know that? To love your neighbor as yourself means to seek your neighbor's flourishing and well-being with the same creativity and resourcefulness that you seek your own. Right? If you're hungry, what will you do to get fed? If you need clothes, what will you do? If you need a roof over your head, loving your neighbor as yourself says, with that same amount of energy, you meet their needs. That's generosity. That's going above and beyond the status quo and the normal expectations for how we live in civil society, which is you keep your own, I'll keep to my own, we'll mind each other's business and everyone's going to be fine. Christian generosity says, no, I'd become poor for you if I could make you rich. That's loving our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, fine book, it's just really big. I'm still working through it. John Calvin, though, he talks about the Ten Commandments, and he shows that underneath every negative thou shalt not command is a positive thou shalt command. For instance, he says, you, you shall not murder also implies the opposite. That to fully obey the command not to murder means you should also seek the preservation and flourishing of your neighbor's life. There's no ethical neutral ground with God. He's not, he's, he's not just passively standing by. And that's generosity. Tithe is one way. It's not the only way. But it's one way that we live generous, God-honoring lives. So no, there is no command to tithe in the New Testament. But here's the thing, guys. Jesus did not lower standards in the New Covenant. He didn't lower the ceiling. He raised it. When we walk into the New Covenant in Christ, everything gets supercharged, not lessened, not diminished. Tithing is assumed as the floor we stand on now, not the ceiling we reach for. That should challenge us. It challenges me. So deep down, I really believe that every single one of you wants to be a stunningly generous human. No matter what stinginess you and I wrestle with, I think at our core, we want to be radically generous. But there's some serious bar barriers in our way. Serious bar barriers to Jesus-like, God-honoring, eye-popping generosity, and perhaps you can relate to one or two of these, let me just give five. First, we don't think we have the resources, right? I don't have enough money to be generous. I know a wonderful saint who tithes $10 a month, and the Lord takes what we give him and multiplies it and feeds people with the gospel. It matters.
So that's, that's one barrier. Second barrier, we think that generosity now will lead to scarcity later. You know that feeling? Yeah. <laughs> I felt the murmur in the room. <laughs> yeah, it's security, right? Generosity now will lead to my scarcity later. Third, we don't want to make a big deal out of ourselves. We don't want to turn heads. We don't want to be impressive by flashing money or generosity or hospitality around, so we just kind of keep to ourselves. Fourth, we think that the recipient of our generosity will misuse the gift. Jesus said, don't worry about it. He said, if someone begs and you have it, give it. He says, don't withhold good from, the, from those who you can do good to. Fifth, we just want stuff. We want, I want my comforts more than I want someone else's comforts or flourishing. Those are just five. There's probably a thousand barriers to stunning generosity in our lives. So the question is, if I'm right and we really do want to be generous like Jesus, how? How do we go from thinking of generosity as a demand and when we feel guilty about it? And I hope you're not. The Spirit may convict you, but the aim of this text is not to crush you. It's actually to give you hope and strength and power in the gospel. We need this to go from a demand to a delight. How does that happen? How can we grow to be God-honoring, eye-poppingly generous people? Two things that we have to consider. This is how this works. First, we need to see Jesus' generosity. And then we need to see Jesus' wealth. All right? So, first, let's just think about Jesus' generosity. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Again, this is, this is what I quoted earlier to you. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's telling them about the Macedonian church that was incredibly generous. It says, out of their extreme poverty, they gave above and beyond their means, and it was this great grace of God, a privilege for them. And Paul's pointing out the Macedonian church as an example because he's raising money for the work of ministry. The Bible's got fundraising letters in it. So he's raising money for kind of church in hard places and the relief of saints in hard times. So let's read from verse 1 in 2 Corinthians 8 through verse 5. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, on the one hand, and their extreme poverty, on the other hand, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. You just reread that and live in there for a while. <laughs> It's encouraging and challenging. But then Paul goes on to ask the church in Corinth to follow their example. But he knows how hard generosity is. Paul knows about those barriers we just talked about. Paul feels that groan that we all felt when our idols were confronted. And so Paul follows the 2 Corinthians 3.18 principle. And I'll explain that in a moment. He says, if you want to get generous, you got to look at Jesus. It's as simple as that. 
That's the power of the gospel. So look at verses 8 and 9. Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For, here it is, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's the gospel in terms of economics. The path to stunning generosity for the Corinthian church was to behold the stunning generosity of Jesus. There was no other way that their idols could be confronted and overturned. That's what Jesus does. Jesus had eternal glory with the Father, all honor, all the riches of the universe, and he left it. For our sake, he impoverished himself so that we could become rich. Beholding Jesus' generosity, believing it, worshiping him for it, it's how you become generous. There's just no other way. If you, out of the guilt of your own conscience, turn around and write a big check to a great ministry to make yourself feel better, you're still robbing God because it's not your money he wants. It's your heart. So we have to stare at the gospel, stare at the stunning generosity of Jesus until he transforms us by the power of his spirit to be like him and to love him. Second thing we have to look at then is Jesus' wealth because a poor man showing generosity to a poor man is noble, it's good, but a rich man becoming poor to make a poor man rich is a thing unheard of. And Christ wasn't just a rich man. He was the son of the eternal living God. So now take that rich to poor to rich thing and make it you know, exponentially multiplied on a cosmic scale and you're starting to get the picture. 1 John chapter 1 talks about Jesus as life. Life himself, capital L. He has life in and of himself. You and I have derivative life. It has been given to us from something. There was a time when we didn't have it. Jesus is life himself. And life himself became sin itself so that when life died, sin died, and then we get his life. <laughs> cosmic proportions of generosity. We can't even fathom it. We have to speak in abstractions. He became poor so that he could give us the riches he had. John 17, glorious prayer. Jesus is praying to the Father. And he asks that the Father would give us, you and I, some of the glory and love and joy that he has had with the Father for all eternity. There's no greater riches than that. And all that means that unless we start to understand Jesus' wealth, we'll never understand Jesus' generosity. And if we don't understand Jesus' generosity, we'll never get generous. Not truly. There's a great story in Luke's Gospel about a, a tiny little tax collector who got generous. You guys know who I'm talking about? 
we little Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a traitor to his people. He would have been spit on and insulted, but he endured it because money mattered more to him. Right? The Roman uh, people, the Roman Empire had come and overtaken Israel, the Jewish regions there, Jerusalem, and they were demanding taxes from the people. And then just to add insult to injury and put salt on the wound and make it worse, they would take Jewish people and make them tax collectors. These Jews would now go and take taxes from their brothers and sisters and give them to the Roman occupiers. And what's worse is this one was also skimming off the top. Zacchaeus was a thief and he was robbing the people, taking some for himself, giving some to the empire. One day this traitor hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming to town. So he, of course, climbs a tree because he wants a good view of this guy. Don't know his motives. Doesn't matter anymore. Because Jesus is walking by, looks up in a tree and sees this little tax collector and he says, I need to eat at your house tonight. Come on down. I'm going to go home with you. And when he entered into that house, everything changed for Zacchaeus. See, he encountered a man who would give dignity and honor to someone who did not deserve it. Zacchaeus was impoverished of honor. He had no dignity. And Jesus ennobled him by saying, I'm going to stay with you tonight. You are my host. He got to host the living God in his home and feed him supper. That was a shadow of Jesus' generosity. And it seems that all Jesus did was walk in the door and maybe eat with him. And Zacchaeus stood up and said, Lord, I'm turning away from it all. And if whatever I've taken from these people, I give back four times as much. Now, if love of money was the idol that had lodged in Zacchaeus' heart, so important to him that he would betray his people for it, endure shame and mocking and spitting for it. That's how important money was. What could dislodge that idol to that extent? Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Not because Zacchaeus earned salvation by giving money back. He gave money back because he had already been saved. He encountered the generosity of Jesus, and it transformed him from the inside out. That's how we get generous, too. Just need to invite Jesus over for dinner. You don't need to be wealthier. You don't need to be braver. You just need to stare at the gospel a little bit. Number three, stewarding our resources. Let's get practical. I've preached the concepts behind Malachi 3, uh, talking about tithing and robbing, but I know that we've got some questions now as we think through how do I put this into action in my life. So I'm just going to address two questions. You can always email Ryan and I if you have more questions. Pastors at ChristChurchTN.com. Pastors, plural. Um, so let's just, let's just cover these two questions about stewarding our resources. First question is, if, is God promising to give me more money if I start tithing? No. We call that the prosperity gospel. 
God is not interested in enriching you and giving you a comfortable lifestyle if you just give him a little piece off the side. That's not how the economy of salvation works. So when God says to, in, in Malachi 3 to the people, he says, put me to the test, right? That is not an encouragement for all of us to test God. Testing God without his invitation to do so, God calls that a sin, right? Jesus says to Satan, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This was a contextual, circumstantial encouragement where he's saying, in the very place of your sin and rebellion, if you turn to me, I'll bless even that. But we do have God's assurance that if our hearts are generous because of the transformative work of Christ, God will bless us in every way so that we can bless others. I wouldn't have the courage to say it if the Bible didn't say it. But it does. In 2 Corinthians 3, nope, 2 Corinthians 9, something, it's in that chapter, Paul says God will enrich you in every way so that you might be generous in every way. Generosity is the point when God entrusts his resources to us. For example, let's think about Luke 19, uh, 11 through 27, and you can turn there, and we're going to read a little chunk of it in a moment. This is a parable that Jesus tells. It's a story where a nobleman entrusts some money called minas to a few of his workers, his servants. And then this nobleman goes on a journey, right? So it's an investment story. And when this nobleman gets back, he found that a couple of his servants invested his money really well, and one of them just buried it, right? So let's look with me, um, Luke 19, starting in verse 16. The first of these servants came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Chew on that story for a while today. There's a lot there. But at rock bottom, God doesn't function by equation. We don't give him 100 and get back 200. But he is deeply committed to giving his blessing to those who are willing to plow their resources into the kingdom. You see that the servant who took the biggest risks with that money, who just shot for the moon, received the most. Why? Because Christ knows I can entrust resources to this person and they'll put them to use. 
It's not about our profit. It's about the kingdom. It's about the church. It's about mercy and justice in this broken world. That's why God blesses us. That's what he loves to bless. Again, here it is, 2 Corinthians 9.11. You will be enriched in every way in order to be generous in every way. Okay, so the answer is no. It is not an equation where we put money in and get more money out. It's not a cosmic slot machine. It's not how this works. But if you are committed to Christ, transformed by Christ, and ready to take everything that God has entrusted to you and push it over onto his square, he will bless you in every way. Second question, do I have to give 10% of my money to the church, or can I serve in other ways? Yes. (laughs) Uh, Again, we're not talking at the level of command for tithing here. We're talking about what kind of stunning generosity is Christ calling us into? What is he inviting us into? What can we join him with? Here's what Jesus tells the Pharisees in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, here's the, these are the lightest of the herbs, right? You tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier things of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. We we take all of our resources and lay them at the feet of Christ. We take our money and say, it's not mine, it's yours. We take our time and say, this is a gift from you. We take our emotional energies when we don't think we have any more to give. He enriches us in every way so that we might be generous. All of it. Not one in place of the other. We are not Christians only with our wallets or only with our hands. Our whole selves have been redeemed and called to Christ. It's easy to think that when we give to the church, I'll conclude with this, it's easy to think that when we give to the church or to Christian ministries that we are investing our money in the kingdom. It's actually the other way around. God has invested his money with you and with me. We're the bankers, we're the stockbrokers of God's money. And God wants a dividend, as is right, not because he needs money, but because he loves mercy. So whatever resources we have, it's God's investment. Whatever you've got, friends, whatever capacities you have, God has invested it in you for his glory and for mercy and justice in this world. So as we move toward the Lord's Supper, let's consider the king who is cosmically wealthy and became poor for you. And what we're about to taste is a reminder of his return on investment. He paid the price of body and blood and he reaped a wonderful harvest, a new creation full of humans who are being transformed by the generosity of Jesus. Let's pray for that end now and prepare our hearts for the table.
Lord Jesus, we give you honor and praise and glory for impoverishing yourself for us. We, we can hardly take in how big that gap is between your wealth and our poverty, between being the Lord of the universe and between the grave. And we praise you. And we love you. And we ask that as we behold that in our hearts, that reality, that you will transform us from one degree of glory into another, into your image. And we know that it doesn't come from guilt. It doesn't come from our strategies to do better and our bootstrapping. It comes from you and your spirit. Would you work that in our hearts now to your glory? And as we move to the table, would you give peace to those who feel that they've outsinned your mercy but who trust your name, the name of Christ. Amen.